Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, August 2nd, 2021, and we're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Ero, an explorer of streams. Today we've got Mark Hieronymus with us again from Trout Unlimited. Mark joined us earlier this year to talk about Southeast Alaska steelhead. We're excited to have him back. So welcome, Mark. Hey, good to be here. So you seem pretty excited to talk about pinks um, after we wrapped up our conversation about steelhead. What what about them? You got a special like piece in your heart for them? I do. I got a real soft spot for them because my work in the summertime, I'm a, I'm a fly fishing guide in the summertime and uh, pinks are kind of my bread and butter, <laughs> even so much that uh, the group that I, you know, the company that I work with, Bear Creek Outfitters in, in uh, Southeast Alaska, we've got our hashtag on social media and that's humpies pay the bills because that's uh <laughs> that's what they do for us you know we we get a lot of folks excited about fly fishing with pinks and they're a great fish good way to get into the fishery but they offer something to everybody you know uh, whatever skill level so yeah yeah seem like a good entry-level fish they just called them humpies uh where does that name come from so it's the 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 males when they get closer to the stream mouths and they start to they start to change for their spawning run they develop a really tall hump on their back and sometimes it's almost a recurve. And so that's where that name came from. Do you know why they have that? It's pretty impressive on some of them. They get like a big old hump. It'll like be hanging out of the water a little bit if they're in a shallow spot. Yeah, it's probably something to do with males use it during spawning season so they can, you know, when they display to each other, they can demonstrate dominance, you know, be able to spawn with more females. You know, when these fish are out at sea, they look like, you know, similar to the other salmon. They're silvery. They don't have that hump. What are some of the distinguishing characteristics both at sea and when they return besides that hump that people can help identify them with compared to some of the other salmon? So in the ocean phase, they have uh, large oval spots. Their their spots are kind of outsized for their body and they're not ragged. They're actually pretty smooth on the margins, just big ovals. And there's ovals all over, you know, spots all over the tail. They've got a fairly fine jaw structure, finer than sockeye. They've got very small scales and that's pretty much, that's a really big identifier for them. In freshwater, since they lose their scales, they get a cream colored belly. You know, obviously the males get the big hump and then the females get a cream colored belly with olive sides and they still retain those spots on the tail, but they're really hard to see across the top. And Generally speaking, they're the, the smallest, typically the smallest of the Pacific salmon. So that's kind of another tell as well. How quickly do they turn over from their chrome ocean phase to this spawning coloration? I'd, I'd say if I had to pinpoint or if I had to, you know, take a, a stab at a ballpark, I'd say it takes about a week, 10 days for them to really start turning. Because that's, for me, they're not available to us as beachbound fly anglers. You know, that kind of influence, that really limits where our observations are taken from. We'll see them jumping out off the river mouths and they'll be chrome bright. And then they'll start to slowly, you know, when they pull in shore, they'll, they'll start to lose that brightness. They go light green first, and then they start to progress through that olive into a drab brown. And generally, you know, that's about two weeks, I'd say. They don't spend as long at sea, right? I mean, they're a two-year... Life cycle, could you go into that a little bit just in terms of, you know, how it compares to other salmon and even that odd even year situation they got going on? Yeah, so pretty much all returning humpies are two years old. Let's start with this. Though They're closely similar to chum in that they don't generally rear, they don't typically rear in the rivers for any longer than about two weeks or however long it takes them to get once they swim up out of the gravel to the sea. 
And so that makes him different from King Ko and Sakai. And then what makes him different from Chum is whereas, whereas Chum have multiple ages in the, along their life history, all, pretty much all pinks, statistically, all pinks are two years old. And so the interesting thing that comes out of that is that there's an odd an odd year genetic line and an even year genetic line. And the two don't really have any opportunity to cross. They're very, they're numerous. They're, um, they're very successful at what they do. Pink salmon are kind of like alders and rats in that way, because they're, they're very successful at, at filling niches that the other salmon don't, don't fill. So does that mean that the fish that are, are coming back on say an odd year are more closely related uh, to fish in other streams that are in that year than they are to the fish that come back to the same stream in the even year? Exactly. Wow. That's cool. We're in an odd year, so is it going to be a good year for fish and pinks down in southeast? Well, typically in southeast Alaska, our large runs are the odd years, but I think the run forecast this year is about 33 million fish, and last year's run was maybe 8 million fish. So, yes, we've definitely got that odd year dominant run down here in southeast. So you mentioned some really huge numbers there. Why are there so many fish returning that are pinks? I mean, that's just amazing. Some of those numbers. I mean, you mentioned the downturn, but why why so large of a numbers? Well, pinks, you know, they have a, a pretty decent survival rate and there's a lot of streams that support pinks and they're the most numerous of all the salmon. That's kind of their niche there. There is hatchery augmentation in Southeast Alaska. Matter of fact, a lot of the hatcheries in Southeast Alaska started with pink salmon because they're easier to raise, they're, they return in two years, so it's a really quick return on your investment, right? But since about the early 2000s, I think 2002, 2003 were the last large pink release years. And uh, after that, the contribution to you know the hatchery portion of the total run is 5% or less, really. So in, in Southeast Alaska, what kind of habitat is available to pinks? Like how many streams are we talking that are available to potentially go fishing in for, for pink salmon? Pinks are really not all that particular about their habitat. They really like cold, clean water. And that's one of their major requirements and good spawning gravel. But beyond that, they tend to spawn in the lower reaches, even in the intertidal reaches of a lot of streams. So that opens up a lot of habitat. And as a result, you get 2,500 to 3,000 streams that have populations of pink salmon. Wow. And they're... Uh, they're pretty amazing because their eggs can actually withstand a saltwater wash for a very brief amount of time for a, you know, six or eight hours. And so they're actually successful as intertidal spawners. And as a matter of fact, one of my friends when I was in Sitka was telling me about the uh, indigenous origin story or the story of uh, where pink salmon, you know, the niche that pink salmon occupied. And they talked a lot about them spawning at the foot of tidewater glaciers still out in the saltwater where there was enough flowing fresh water coming out from under the glacier that they could spawn wow. in an area. And then as those glaciers started to recede, the pinks started to populate those areas. And there's an interesting study that was done in Glacier Bay at a place called, and I'm probably going to butcher this, but I think it's Wolf Point Creek. And so there was a glacier, there was a tidewater glacier that finally got out of salt water in 1972. And then over the years, biologists watched the glacier recede and watched the pinks colonize the, the river that it made. And then in, I think, 2010 was the last time that I saw anything written on it. By that time, they had a self-sustaining population of 25,000 pinks in a creek that was only a mile long from where oh. the glacier receded. So there's, when I said earlier about there being rats and alders, it's not a negative connotation. They just fill any available habitat that's, you know, or any habitat that's available to them 
that other fish can't use, that other salmon can't use. That's really cool to watch that play out. I mean, there can't be too many situations where you can kind of see that glacial retreat and how salmon do that. That's super cool. Can we talk a little bit about fly fishing for these fish? You mentioned beach fishing. Walk us through kind of what it's like. What kind of gear are you using? Are you just fishing beaches? Are you actually going up into rivers as well? I'd love to learn a little bit more about that. Well, we start on the beaches because pinks have this habit of massing out in front for quite a while, and then they'll move up the stream and mass. And so for the first part of the season, we get, you know, we have, that's kind of right now, we're in the we're in the heart of the season. But in the first part of the season, in early July, we get shots at pinks at low tide, and they're generally a little bit offshore. We like, I like to fish a, a seven weight rod because it's good in the wind. It's good to fight, you know, if you get a if you tie into the occasional seven or eight pounder, you know, they can get up to, I think the state record 16 pounds or something like that. But they're generally, generally speaking, you'll see them five to seven pounds in that, in the first portion of the run, they're still, they're still pretty angry. And, um, you know, they might take you for a ride on that seven weight. So, um, yeah, anything less than that, and you're probably just doing a disservice to the fish, but then as they move in into the streams, yeah, we'll follow them up the streams for a little bit, but I try to, confine most of my angling for pink salmon to the the tidewater sections so i know that i'm most likely not fishing over spawning fish at any phase of the tide i'm gonna you know if that's that's kind of to me that's what i don't really want to do is bug those fish that made it past all fisheries i want to let them have their moment in the sun make more fish for us to, mm-hmm. to catch in a couple of years you know so and are these a good beginner fish for folks compared to some of the other salmon say yeah they're great there's a lot of them, you know, there's a bunch of things that make them good, but number one, there's a lot of them. Number two, they're eating machines. I mean, they're, they're probably, if you've got the right color and size combination, which changes, you know, it's, it's not a day to day necessarily, but changes throughout the season. If you've got that on, then you can catch as many as you wish, as many as you can throw your line in and pull out of the water. Right. Hmm. They're used to shallow water. So as they come in shore, you know, we're not they don't swim away from you. You know, they swim 10 or 15 feet from you. The size makes them really good. You can put a kid with a kid's fly rod on them and you know, you're pretty sure that, you know, they're not going to break the rod, (laughs) you know, unlike say like a chum or a big coho, they're not going to go crazy, but uh, they fight. They don't necessarily fight all that spectacularly, but they put up a pretty good effort. Yeah. They're a great way to get folks into fly fishing. Now, are they actually eating? Because I know a lot of salmon, they kind of get in, they, their internal organs are deteriorating, everything's going into the gametes. But are they actually eating? Or are they snapping at things going by? Or are you kind of having to floss them a little bit? They're actively chasing things down to hit them. Now, whether or not they're eating, I'm an all-catch-and-release guide, so I don't cut their stomachs open to see or anything like that. But they're definitely chasing stuff down. We rarely, if ever, floss pinks. Matter of fact, one of my favorite ways to fish for pink salmon as they get into the estuary is is with a topwater. With a oh, I'll be excited about that. <laughs> you can fish uh, chugged and pop topwaters for them, and you can also, in certain select situations, you can dead drift dry flies, and they'll actually come up to eat the dry flies. So, you know, once again, they're they're bitey. They're just they're. I think it 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 has to have some something to do with the fact that that they've only got that 18 month clock that's ticking when they swim up and they swim out to the ocean, you know, they're just going for it. Yeah. They're looking at their watch the whole time going up, oh, gotta eat, gotta eat, gotta eat. 
and and they just they're just eating machines. So, what are these guys eating at sea? And does that have anything to do with the coloration of their flesh being more pinky and kind of white? Yeah, I think it does. They eat small fish. They eat squid. But I think a lot of their diet, at least at the very start, is the copepods. And then as they get a little bit bigger, I, I think they feed on shrimp and krill quite a bit too. But they're anything that swims by them that fits in their mouth, they're going to try to eat it. What's your favorite fly to use? Like your absolute favorite? That's uh, my topwater fly. It's a it's a variation on a guard side gurgler. Um, <laughs> so it's basically just a piece of foam on the top with a tail to keep the fly anchored in the water. So when you're popping it, it doesn't fly out of the water. And then a little bit, although it doesn't matter too much, I like to put a little bit of flash and sparkle on the belly, but enough that I can cut or, you know, it, it'll represent well, but if it's scaring the fish, I can cut it out pretty quick and change that. I was just talking with my uncle this past week about fishing in general. And he's saying that as he's gotten older, he's really focusing more on catching the fish the fun way rather than catching as many fish as possible. And so this definitely seems like this technique will catch fish the fun way. But I'm curious, do you think in this process you're foregoing a lot of fish caught that you could catch by stripping something through the water? Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you could you could catch pink salmon with the right flies and the, you know, the right flies and the right, if you have the right depth control, you can catch them every single cast for every daylight hour. And, you know, the, the dry fly or the surface fly, you're going to get the energetic fish. You get the real enthusiastic ones that want to chase something down and, and uh, they tend to fight a lot better as well too. But it's certainly, you know, they say the progression of fishing is catch a fish, catch a bunch of fish, catch, catch a big fish, and then, you know, fish the way you want to fish and fish the way that's fun. Right. That's kind of the yeah. art. You can find all of that within pink salmon, right? Because not only can you catch them as, you know, as quick as you can throw a fly out there, they're also receptive to these things. You know, a, a small group of the fish are receptive to things that aren't necessarily the best way to fish, but man, I'll tell you what, they're super fun it's to, to throw a fly out and see a fish react to it to come almost out of its element up to the surface and stick its head out of the water eating a fly is pretty amazing. I was trying very hard towards the end of my time in Alaska the first time to catch a coho salmon. And so I was down there in the trenches with everyone trying to get the cohos and you catch a lot of pinks along the way too. And I remember this one woman was like, ah, well, I'll take it home. I'll give it to my cat. So I have, I have one contribution to that because a lot of pink was canned. And I used to, when I was in the commercial fishing industry, I would support the industry by going out and buying a couple of cans every year. The joke for the best recipe for at least for my best recipe was that you open the can place it gently on the floor, back up a few steps and shout, here, kitty, kitty. I like eating all kinds of stuff. So yeah, well, uh, when we catch a pink, I mean, I guess the two favorite recipes I have are Alfredo. So just fillet them, chop them up after you get your sauce going, throw it in there and then call it good, throw it over some noodles. The kids really like mac and cheese. So we throw in some pink, throw in some broccoli, a little healthy mac and cheese for the kids. Those are decent ways to eat a pink, in my opinion. I mean, it's the, it's the only time I've eaten pink salmon was cooking up the tenders and the eggs, and the eggs were nasty. And this is, again, towards the end of my time in Alaska, so I was trying to clean out the fridge 
And so I made like pork ramen noodles, threw a bunch of like leftover <laughs> barbecue, like pulled pork in there, stirred in a bunch of these pink salmon eggs, as well as like the, the salmon tenders. Well, that's how you maybe did it, guys. And <laughs> I just stirred it. It was the grossest oh. thing I had to eat, but it was the eggs that tasted bad. It wasn't the, the, the milk sacks. The milk sacks were fine. They were, I looked forward to getting a spoonful of those. There you go. So the the tenders, we call them salmon tenders around my household here. And basically, when you fillet a fish and you get a boy fish, there's the two gametes are in there and they're white. They're quite huge on some fish. I mean, we're talking like four or five inches long. And if you batter them with flour and fry them in a pan, they look exactly like a chicken tender and they taste really similar too. And lots of people who try them really like them. So I make all everybody try them when they come to our house. <laughs> Yeah, the knock on pink though is it's got that you know the the roe. There's just this hint of chartreuse in it, and along with the other coloration, it once you salt it, it goes kind of brain gray. If that's a way to describe a color, that's really not an appealing color. And I think that's one of the biggest knocks against pink salmon roe because it actually tastes pretty good as long as you don't boil it. Mm-hmm. For all the home cooks out there that want to make. Uh, rows to get a, a racquetball racket or a tennis racket and, yeah. uh, yep. and then rub them through that and that'll separate it out wear a cotton glove on the back and the, the membrane will stick to the cotton glove and the eggs will fall through and then when, once you get them through then what's the best way to process them there's a bunch of different things you can do with them you want to put them in a colander or a sieve or something a non-reactive vessel that that's got good drainage so you can get a lot of the uh, you know the broken egg fluid out of there just so you're looking at clean eggs and then you can either add salt by weight at about 3% and just sprinkle it over the top, mix them up a little bit and let them drip for a little while. And then they're generally good to go after about four hours. Or you can put them in a wet brine. And if you do that, then it's, you know, the, the best way to do a wet brine is to force as much salt as possible into the water. You generally get up around 26 or 27 degrees of salinity, which is, you know, technically 100% saturated solution. And then depending on how old the eggs are, you, they can go in for anywhere from three to eight or nine minutes with the idea of getting at that same 3%-ish level there. We use like a, a measurement in ours, but I've heard that if you can float a potato. Yeah, the old, the, uh, I remember one of the guys that I worked for years and years and years ago in, in the late 80s, would, he would talk about before they had a hygrometer, they would put a, a nail in a potato and set it in there. And if it could float that, then you were good to go. Then you knew you had an, enough salinity. And that's kind of the big secret is when you salt them, you're driving the water out, you're, you're gelling the proteins and they taste when it's done right. When you get, when you get to that three to three and a half percent salt, it tastes like slightly salty butter with no fish taste. And Mm -hmm. with pinks, there's just a, there's a hint of cucumber in there. Just the tiniest little bit. Cool. Wow. Great having you again. Mark, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And this was some really cool information about pink salmon. Yeah, it's been fun. We hope you get out there and enjoy all the fish, including pink salmon. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore, production management by Gabriella Montaquin, post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, 
scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. Thank you.